Finance. It seems hard to learn. But is it really? Wall Street likes to overcomplicate everything money-related, confusing a lot of people. Join us on this podcast as we help break down the world of money for you to understand from a relatable perspective. This is Finance Simplified. Hey everyone, how's it going today? My name is Rohan and I'm super excited to welcome you to today's episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for street fins. We have a super duper special guest today, Dr. Alvin Roth, who's a professor of economics at Stanford University. He also happens to be the winner of the 2012 Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences, which he also won with Lloyd Shapley for the theory of stable allocations and the practice of market design. We're going to get more into market design in this episode, as the title suggests. But it's basically the study and design of any kind of market, whether it's the market for toilet paper, or the market for stocks, or even the market for jobs. We'll be discussing some of the work he did to win that Nobel Prize in this episode. Excited would be an understatement for how I feel about today's upcoming discussion. Today's goal is to simplify the topics of game theory and market design, both of which are ever-present in our daily lives. Alvin has done extensive work in this field, so let's just get started. Alvin, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you. No, thank you. So I just have to ask this question. How is it like winning, winning the Nobel Prize in 2012? Well, it's, it's a lot of fun. I recommend it. Yeah. And, you know, as I was doing research into your career and how you got into economics, I came across something interesting, and that is that you didn't initially start out as an, as an economist. You actually started out as an engineer. Could you talk a little bit about how that influence from engineering has impacted your work? Well, I, I think of myself today as a kind of economic engineer. I'm, I'm a market designer, so I, I get to help people uh, fix markets, marketplaces when they're broken and, and sometimes create new ones. And that's a very engineering thing to do. And I, as you say, I, I studied operations research, which is a kind of engineering that's that's meant to fix things when they're broken and help them work better so so i don't feel that i uh made a radical change in what i was trying to do right and you mentioned that you study and practice market design so as one of the topics of our episode could you uh, just introduce us to what market design is because i guess the traditional way we're taught to learn about markets is that they'll just kind of naturally form but in many cases that's not really what happens so could you introduce us to the idea of market design? Sure. So, so a better name might possibly be marketplace design, because no one really thinks marketplaces just happen, right? Uber is a market for drivers and passengers, and it didn't just happen. It's a company. The New York Stock Exchange is a company. Airbnb is a company. These are all marketplaces. Google is a marketplace for ads, you know, in response to searches. So, so I think the view that markets just happen isn't one that stands close examination. And once you start thinking of marketplaces as things that are designed, and they could be collectively designed from, you know, with lots of people participating and, and making changes, uh, or they could be designed by a single company that makes changes. Uh, once you think about marketplaces as being designed, you can start thinking of how to do it well, how to how to avoid some of the error and trial and error, how to make markets do what, what we want them to do, rather than do other things that they could sometimes do. And, and the, th the primary goal of market design is to make sure that, I guess, each participant in the market gets what he or she wants at the end well, of the day. Well, that, that can be hard. Sometimes you can't get what you want. You might want a jet airplane, but they're expensive. So no, I wouldn't say that, that we make sure that everyone gets what they want, but we want to make sure that the market works well and, and brings people who want to transact with each other together in an efficient, safe, and reliable manner. 
Right. And in your book, which I did read, uh, Who Gets What and Why, it talks a lot about, I mean, I'm in high school, so I really resonated with the parts about like the college admissions process. I'm a senior right now. I'm applying to many places. And you kind of talk about how the college admissions process is a market in and of itself. So I was wondering if you could explain to our audience that that viewpoint. Well, college admissions is, is certainly a market. Colleges sell higher education and they, they sell, sell it to students. And you know, the students, you know, are, are interested in going to college. And as you say, you apply to many places because the market doesn't clear by price alone. College admissions is not a commodity market where Stanford admits you know, anyone who can pay the tuition and raises the tuition until the demand equals the supply. It's a matching market where you can't just choose what you want. You also have to be chosen. So you can't just come study at Stanford because you can afford the tuition. You have to be admitted. And of course, Stanford also can't just decide which students to hire. It has to compete for students with, with Cal and with Harvard and, and MIT. So these are matching markets and prices don't do all the work. It, it's not, an, you know, when you, when you put together your college admission, you are doing more, you're a college application. You're doing more than saying, here's my financial statement. I can afford tuition. You're saying, look at me. I would be a good member of your freshman class. And that's a very different thing. And that makes matching markets, of which there are many, a little bit like marriage. You can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen. You can't just choose your job. You also have to be hired. So many, many markets are not simply commodity markets where prices do all the work. And a lot of those, as you mentioned, the, the college market, it's a lot about the uh, individual person, I guess, selling themselves, but also the the other party, the college, the, the company also choosing them as well. Um, Absolutely. So it's, you know, when I say it's like marriage, it, there's a lot of courtship involved. Right? We should tell you why Stanford is a good place to, to come and study, and you should tell us why you would be a, a good member of the class. And, and then the, mar- the job of the marketplace, the job of the market is to make matches. You, know, you get admitted to a number of places and you decide where to go. There might be discussion of financial aid in that process. There might be discussion of what you want to study. So, so there's a, a courtship, and, and many of the features of the market are designed to help the market clear without using prices to equate supply and demand. So there are uh, applications and interviews, and essays, and campus visits, all of those things are, are designed to help sort out who goes. Right. And what would be the characteristics of markets that you'd like, uh, that you would rate? Like, if I were to give you a market for XYZ, how would you choose to rate whether it's good or not? Well, I like to know whether the, the market has marketplaces that, that are thick, you know, that bring lots of people together uh, so that they can transact and consider their options, consider lots of options and, and choose among them. But then markets also have to deal with congestion. When, when you have lots of people coming together to transact, it might be hard to process the transactions you need to in the time that you have. So in, in you know, you think of something like the Common App for college admissions. The Common App makes it easy to apply to lots of places. That's a good thing. But it makes it hard for colleges to understand which of the applications are serious and which are not, which, which is congestion. It's a bad thing. You know, the admissions offices have to deal with lots more applications than they used to. And the fact that you apply to a college conveys less information about your interest than it used to when you had to type up all your forms and put them in a, an envelope and bring them to the post office. In other words, when it was costly to apply. So, so it's good to bring down the cost, but, but it's not so good to, to have congestion. And then markets should be reliable and trustworthy and safe. So I think those are the the main characteristics. So it's thickness, reliability, safety, and along along the lines of thickness, not being too thick, 
or congested. I don't know that you could be too thick. Thickness is good, but then you have to deal with congestion. Think how think about Amazon as a marketplace. It's got a lot of different products on it. If they didn't have good search engines, Amazon wouldn't be very helpful because you know there there would be a website and you'd be you know looking to buy a pen, but they sell lots of different kinds of pens, and it would be hard to find the ones you wanted. But but because they have a good search engine, you don't find yourself looking at books about pens. You know you can go directly to pens and start sorting among them. So marketplaces have to deal with congestion. And when you think about college admissions, one of the things that that colleges do when they're getting many applications that are inexpensive to make, inexpensive for applicants, they start to look for what they call signals of demonstrated interest. They might track you when you visit their website. They might take note of whether you come for a campus tour. They might read your essay and see whether uh, you have some particular connection to the college or some reason that, that it would be a good place for you to study. So that's why, again, you know, matching markets are like courtship. They, they have to get to know you a little bit and have to try to figure out what kind of signals you're sending them. And in this whole matching process, game theory comes into play. And, and game theory, I feel, is a topic that everyone, because it's really just the, the study of like strategic decisions, it's something that people deal with on a daily basis, uh, but they're just not as formally introduced to it. So could you introduce us to game theory? Game theory is about environments like markets where the outcome depends not just on what you do as an individual, but what other people do too. So when, when you have to, when you apply to colleges, one of the things you might think about is how likely you are to get into one. And when colleges look at applications, one of the things they might think about is how likely you are to come if accepted. And that has to do, they might also think about whether, whether they want to admit you, whether you're you know, be a good member of their entering class. And that depends, of course, on who else is applying. It depends on what other people are doing. So, so strategic games are games in which you have to think what you should do given what other people are doing. And that's where all these things about sending signals and you know being careful maybe about how many people you admit because if you're at college, colleges are not just communities of scholars, they're also hotels. So we have to be careful we can house, things like that. So that, that involves making a model, making predictions about who will accept our offers. You know, how many, if we want to admit 100 people, how, if we want to enroll 100 people, how many do we have to admit? Typically, we have to admit more than 100, but, but maybe we don't have to admit 200, depending on whether the applicants who we admit are likely to come. Right. I kind of want to get into more uh, detail, actually, about like the different kinds of market failures that exist. So you mentioned one, congestion. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. We hardly see any markets that don't successfully overcome congestion because, because markets that are too congested just aren't useful. But an example I like to give that, that people can sometimes think about is the congestion problem that Airbnb had to overcome compared to, to its competitors, which are big hotel companies like Hilton Hotels. When I want to make a reservation in, in the Hilton Hotel in San Francisco, I call up and I ask if they've got a room, say, for this Friday. And the receptionist, the person on the phone, has access to look at all the rooms. So she can look at all the rooms and tell me if one's available. But Airbnb doesn't work like that. Many Airbnb apartments and, and rooms might have proprietors who just deal with that one apartment, right? So I could be renting my apartment while I'm away. But if my apartment is already booked, you have to go look for a different apartment. So think about the problem that Hilton Hotels would have if when you called to rent a room, the receptionist had to ask you, uh, okay, uh, which room do you want? And, and you know, that would surprise you the first time it happened. And you'd say, well, you know, how about, how about room 1501? And she'd say, I'm so sorry, you know, 
that room is booked on Friday. And then she'd hang up and you'd have to call again and say, how about room 1502? And she'd, oh yeah, you know, 1502 is available. Well, that's the, that was the original Airbnb story. If you tried to reserve my room and it wasn't available, you had to try to reserve another one. And sometimes there was a delay in their original design. I might only look at my Airbnb entries when I got home from work. So, so you would waste a day trying to rent my room when I had rented it to someone else. So now that they've moved to apps and things like that, they have a lot more control over, over who sees what. So if, I, if someone has tried to reserve my room, they won't show it to you when you go online and, and try to look for a room. So you won't be wasting your time getting online behind someone who's ahead of you. And that makes it a lot easier to, to, for Airbnb to act like a hotel, even though each room might be owned by a different proprietor. All right. Yeah. And you can clearly see how they solved the, the whole problem of congestion there, too. The next market failure I was hoping you could talk about was unraveling. And in your book, you also talk about unraveling as it relates to college sports recruitment and the way that the games are scheduled, as well as employment for lawyers and, and medical students, too. So could you talk about that? Sure. Well, unraveling, you know, sometimes not everyone likes a thick market because a thick market is good for you to have lots of options. But but that means you can see if I'm selling and you're buying, that means you can see my competitors, too. And maybe I don't like you having lots of choices among my competitors. So I might try to move my transaction with you before my competitors get out of bed. So we see some of that in college admissions. You, you know, you mentioned you're making a lot of applications. So I'm guessing that you're not that you're not applying any single choice early decision because then you would only be making one application now and waiting until you heard about it. But that's a way for colleges to go early. It's a kind of unraveling. So there are colleges that will allow you to pl- apply to them early and they'll give you an early answer. Um, under different rules. Some of them are, you can apply to my college early, we will tell you yes or no early, but but in the meantime, you can't apply anywhere else. And in fact, you commit, when you apply, you commit to attend our college if we admit you. So that's a, a way of, of avoiding having you have to have lots of offers to consider, which a college might want to do. And what I talked about with college bowls and things like that was, there was a time before the playoff series, you know, before the current industrial organization of college bowls, football bowls, when the bowls used to make deals with teams when there were still several games left to play in the regular season. And that sometimes meant that a a matchup that looked like it would be a great matchup between the number one team and the number two team, when it finally, when it was finally achieved, it might be the number three team against the number 16 team, because they both would have lost some games after they made the agreement. So that, that's a kind of inefficiency where you match too early and you don't get as good matches as you might want. And we could worry about that with college admissions too and with lawyers. You know, if you know someone who's graduating from law school this year and they're going to work for a big law firm, you know, a 500 partner law firm, or if they're going to clerk for a federal appellate judge, they've already known that for two years. A lot of those jobs get essentially matched in the summer after the first or sometimes the second year of law school. And so, so law graduates who are going to the most competitive jobs already know what jobs they're going to in June. And they match to those jobs while they were still young law students. Yeah, I can see how that can be kind of problematic because, you know, you don't know whether or not that judge that you or that lawyer that you hired before he even graduated is going to be a solid uh, lawyer or not. You don't know how they're going to perform. Um, right. And as a law student, you might not really know what kind of law you want to do uh, after your first year of law school. And similar things happened in medicine, and that's why if you know someone who's graduating from medical school, they'll, in a couple of months, be going through what's called the National Resident Matching Program. It's a marketplace for 
matching doctors to their first jobs, new medical graduates to their first jobs. And they now do that in the last year of medical school, in the fourth year of medical school. But, you know, in the middle of the last century, they were doing it the way lawyers now now get many of their jobs, you know, in the summer after the second year of medical school or sometimes even after the first year. Yeah. And again, it just causes that. It's it just that there's the uncertainty, I guess. It introduces uncertainty. It reduces the thickness of the market because when people are making very early offers, they're not making them all at the same time. So here you are in the summer after your first year of medical school or, or law school, and you get a job offer. And and even if the job, you know, even if the judge doesn't say to you, you have to let me know right now, you might have to let him know before you'll know what other offers you might get if you waited through the summer. Gotcha. Another market failure that you uh, had a whole chapter on your book was the problem of having too much speed. Could you also delve into that a little bit? Sure. That That's uh, a little bit the same sort of thing. It can interfere with thickness. So think about commodity markets and stock exchanges. You know, it, it used to be that if you visited the Chicago Board of Trade, you would see people in what were called trading pits signaling to each other about what they wanted to buy and sell. You know, I want to want to buy 5,000 bushels of number two hard red winter wheat at this price. And if you wanted to sell at that price, you would send me a signal as well. You would gesture to me and we would make a deal. And there are rules of, in the market about how the deals are processed. You know, so It's sort of first come, first serve. If I make an offer to the market, the first one who accepts it gets that offer. Well, people aren't trading that way anymore. They're trading with very fast computers. And one of the ways stock exchanges and commodity exchanges make their money nowadays is by renting space in their data centers to the algorithmic traders, because the speed of light starts to be a problem when you're trading as when you're when you're trying to trade as quickly as as they trade. So being in the same data center as the New York Stock Exchange gives you some advantage over people who are further away. And quite a high percentage of, of trades made on American stock exchanges and commodity exchanges are made by computer. And and one reason that people invest all this money in being so fast is because of the first come, first serve rule. If I offer a, a trade and you take it and you're the first one to take it, you get it. And if if you're a little slow, then then someone else gets it. So a lot of money, you know, billions of dollars have been invested in making trades happen very fast in in milliseconds, just a few milliseconds. Whereas it takes you a couple of hundred milliseconds to blink your eyes. So we're talking about a speed now that isn't helping information pass in the market. It's instead causing investment in technology that goes first. And so there's there's some talk these days about since so many trades are being done by computer, maybe we should slow things down to, to stop the need for investment in so much speed. If the cycle continues, it just leads to just more investment in that, like faster cables or faster signal. And signal it's more centers. investment and it's not it's not socially productive investment. Having having many trades done in the time you can blink your eye is not doesn't make for improved economic behavior. In other words, part of what's going on in these very fast trades and, and very fast you know, microwave connections is that if you look at similar commodities like, like futures on Standard & Poor's 500 indices, they move together in, in New York and Chicago, right? They're, they're trading on the same thing. There are different, different ways to uh, make bets on, on what the Standard & Poor's is going to do. And if you look at them over time, measured in seconds, they, they move together because they're the same thing. But if some news comes or if someone makes a big trade, New York might move a few milliseconds ahead of Chicago or vice versa. And so you might be able to anticipate the tr- price change in Chicago before anyone else can if you're 
if you're sitting in the New York data center and, and you might be able to buy on one exchange and sell on the other in those few fractions of a second when the prices are different. And the market makers who have to post bid and ask prices because they know you might be able to transact on their stale bids or asks, you know, that you might be faster than they in, revise, in taking an offer that, that they're going to they're gonna change the price in just a moment. So that might force them to keep their spreads wider so it'll be harder for you to snipe their trades. So, so some of the speed can actually interfere with the efficient running of, of commodity markets because they're supposed to compete on price and not on speed. They work best when they compete on price. Right. Yeah, totally makes sense. I think there's a really interesting movie about that, too. It's called The Hummingbird Project. Not sure if you've seen it, but uh, it was... I, I haven't, but there's a book by Michael Lewis on this kind of thing. There's uh, So yes, it's been widely discussed. Right. Uh, I want to talk more about your work with uh, kidney exchanges, because that was one of the biggest pieces of work that you've done that contributed towards uh, your Nobel Prize. So could you talk about what the problem you were facing in kidney donations was? And, and how you solved it with the kidney pair donations or kidney exchange solutions. Okay, so kidneys are complicated. You, you, need, you have two kidneys and it's good for you when they're working well because that keeps you healthy and alive. And if, if you don't have kidneys that are working well, if, if you have kidney failure, that's a disease that can kill you. And in fact, it's one of the big causes of death all around the world. And you can be kept alive for a while on dialysis, but the treatment of choice is transplantation. And to get a transplanted kidney, either someone has to die in a way that makes their kidneys giftable, transplantable, or you can also get a kidney from someone who loves you because healthy people have two kidneys and can stay healthy with one. But there aren't uh, nearly enough kidneys for the people who need them. So this morning in the United States, we have almost 100,000 people on the deceased donor waiting list, waiting list for a kidney from a dead person. And again, part of the problem is that it's mostly when you die, your, all your organs die with you. So you have to die in, a, in rather special ways before your organs can be given to someone else. So there are 100,000 people waiting. We only do around 14,000 of those transplants a year. So the wait is long and hard. And thousands of people die every year while waiting. And we also do another six or 7,000 uh, living donor transplants. That is a healthy person, healthy enough to remain healthy with just one kidney, gives a kidney to someone who needs it. But it's a little tricky to give people kidneys. Not everyone can give everyone else a kidney. Kidneys have to be well-matched. So if you loved someone who was dying of kidney failure, you might be healthy enough to give them a kidney, but you might not be able to give them your kidney. And kidney exchange is meant to address the situation where you are healthy enough to give a kidney, but you can't give it to the patient who you love who needs it. And maybe I'm in the same situation, but my kidney would work for your patient and your kidney would work for my patient so we can exchange kidneys. And these exchanges have to go on without any money being used because it's against the law in the US and, and almost everywhere else in the world. It's against the law to pay someone for their kidney, which is a long, complicated story in itself. But that's one reason why there's a, a shortage of kidneys in a queue is you can't, it's, it's against the law to use the price mechanism to try to uh, increase the number of kidneys. But kidney exchange increases the number of transplants because it's not at all uncommon that you want to give someone a kidney and you can't give it to them. So kidney exchange allows you to Nevertheless, get a kidney for your for the person you love who needs one by giving your kidney to someone else. And that's kidney exchange. And, and you mentioned the idea of it being so well. The word that you use is repugnant because you're not supposed to pay for. It just it's that we just as a society think it's not right for you to pay for another person's organ. Uh, so could you talk more about the idea of repugnant transactions and and the okay. idea of market cultures? So let me just mention that that it's it's illegal pretty much everywhere in the world to 
buy a kidney from someone, with the single exception of the Islamic Republic of Iran, where they have a, a monetary market for kidneys. But there are black markets around the world. There, there are places where you can buy a kidney, even though it's against the law to do it there. So when I talk about a transaction being repugnant, I have, I have the specific idea in mind that some people would like to do it, but other people don't think they should be allowed to. So the reason we have black markets and kidneys is some people are prepared to sell their kidney and there are people who are prepared to buy them. But the reason they're against the law is in lots of places, we don't think they should be allowed to do so, you know, or at least our legislatures uh, think that, that no one should be allowed to do that. It's a subject plus considerable debate. So there are lots of repugnant transactions. Some of them are serious and some of them are just sort of idiosyncratic. So here in California, where you and I live, it's illegal to eat horse meat. And that's not some ancient cowboy law from a horse was a man's best friend. That's, that's from a 1998 referendum that passed in California uh, that makes it a felony to, to sell horse meat for human consumption. So, you know, when you're out to dinner, you, you're not a vegetarian, you can eat all kinds of meat, but not horse meat, not in California. And that's because some people don't think you should be allowed to eat horse meat. But the reason there's a law against it is not everyone agrees. There's no law against eating cockroaches because no one wants to eat cockroaches. But there are lots of places in the world where people do eat horse meat. And so, so there are people in California who think it's delicious. And the reason we have a law against eating it is not because no one wants to eat it, but it's because some people want to eat it and other people think they shouldn't be allowed. And there are lots of transactions that are legal in some places and illegal in others. I was just in Germany talking about this in, well, in Germany, kidney exchange is illegal. So I, I was in Germany trying to, to help people lobby to change that law. So. In Germany, kidney exchange is illegal. In the United States, it's legal. Here in California and in many US states, surrogacy is legal. You can hire someone to bear a child for you, but that's illegal in Germany. But in Germany, prostitution is legal, and that's illegal almost everywhere in the United States, except for a couple of rural counties in Nevada. So prostitution, surrogacy, and kidney exchange are things where we have exactly the opposite laws in California that they have in Germany. So repugnance is different in different places and legislatures reach different conclusions. My colleague, Stephanie Wong and I have, have done a survey that, that included Germany and the United States. And in both places, people support kidney exchange. So it's not that there's popular sentiment against kidney exchange in Germany that causes there to be a law against it or against surrogacy for that matter. So I think economists don't spend enough time understanding and we don't understand well enough which markets get social support, because markets need social support to work well, and which bans on markets get social support, because bans on markets also need support to work well. Think about the situation in the United States now where state by state, marijuana is being legalized, cannabis, as we say in the legal markets. Well, there, there are still states in the United States where selling marijuana is illegal, and it's still illegal under federal law. So we're divided about that. Heroin, no one thinks heroin is a good thing for people to use, so it's against the law everywhere. But I'm guessing within 10 miles of where you live and 10 miles of where I live, it's possible to buy heroin. So although we have laws against it, and although we work hard to enforce those laws, you know, over 40% of our prisoners in federal jails are, have drug convictions. Nevertheless, it's not just that heroin is available, it's available in such abundance that it's not that expensive. Poor people can, can buy heroin. So there's something about the ban on heroin that isn't attracting the kind of public support that the ban on murder, say, attracts. You know, they're both against the law. We, we prosecute both vigorously. But we had 60,000 opioid overdose deaths in the United States last year, and we only had about 16,000 murders. So we just see a lot less murder than we see uh, drug addiction. 
it's not at all clear why why some markets get support in some places and not in others, and why some bands get support more than others. Those are good things for economists to try to understand. They're too important to be left to the philosophers. Right, right. Uh, my next question kind of goes back to an earlier discussion of game theory. And so a lot of game theory is used in negotiation. And I think one popular negotiation that we've been seeing in the news is the trade war. So could you kind of explain to us kind of the game theory that's going on with that? So I think that's pretty complex. We we have a president who takes things very personally. So so I'm not quite sure what his considerations are. But trade, you know, is is something we do in, you know, it's, it's a big market activity, trade. And by and large, we think that making the market thicker, allowing more trade is a good thing. It, it boosts the economy, but it may not be uniformly good for everyone. This is a little bit what we spoke about when we spoke about unraveling before. People like to participate in a thick market on the other side of the market, but I don't necessarily want you dealing with my competitors. So I, I may not always like a thick market. I like I like to have lots of customers, but I don't like you to have lots of suppliers. And so the thing about trade is if we import steel, say, from, from other countries, that will be good for American automakers, but not good for American steelmakers. So trade is a subject of complicated negotiations that have to do with which interest groups are affected. And one policy that that the world seemed to be working towards in the past was given that there'll be some winners and losers, but that overall it'll increase the wealth of the, of the of the world economy. Maybe we should just try to reduce all barriers to trade. And of course, you know, when when we reduce barriers to steel coming into the United States, that will help people who make cars and who buy cars. But it will harm American auto workers. But it will help will increase the demand for steel from American steelmakers. So there was this long consensus that maybe what we should try to do is gently suppress all the trade barriers. And that consensus seems to be framed partly because the United States is no longer enthusiastic about that. My next question goes back, I guess, to market design, but it's about the market design of financial markets. In your book, you talk about the idea of earliest markets. It was like like a barter system where we didn't have money. It's There has to be something called a double coincidence. Um, so could you explain kind of how our system has evolved, our, our system of trade has evolved from that barter where you'd have to have that double coincidence to what we have today? So so let me make a correction. I I, I, I tried not to, to make any historical claims in my book about the prevalence of barter. I think the story about barter is that it's always hard. So it's not that we used to have worldwide barter and now we have the invention of money, which as I'll talk about eliminates the need for barter. It's that barter was hard. So I think that a lot of economic activity in the past, in the distant past, went on among people who knew each other, right? Who, who you know, in families and clans and tribes and bands of hunter-gatherers, people who could help each other out and expect that they'd get some help in return when they needed help, things like that. Uh, people who could remember who owed who, what to whom. So the, the fellow who talked about double coincidence of wants was a an economist named William Stanley Jevons, and what he said is, think how hard it would be to buy and sell houses if all you could do was trade houses, right? So, you know, so I live in a house and you live in a house. Supposing we each wanted to move to where the other person lived, well, it, it would be really hard if I had to find a house in your neighborhood that I would like 
and that the owner of that house would at the same time like my house and want to trade and that I, and we'd both be willing to trade. And that's what, what he called the double coincidence of wants. And, and what he was writing about was why the invention of money is such a good market design invention. Because if I want to buy a house in your neighborhood, what I can do is sell my house. And now I come with cash in hand and I go buy a house in your neighborhood. And I don't have to find someone in your neighborhood who wants to live in my house. I sell, I sell my house to someone who wants to live in my house and I buy the house of someone who no longer wants to live in their house and, and we're done. And that's what makes you know, housing possible. We, my family moved, we moved here from Boston. So we sold a house in Boston and then we came and we bought a house in California. It would have been much tougher to, to move, right? I, I would still be teaching at Harvard and not at Stanford if before I could move, I had to find someone who wanted to trade houses. with. So trading without money requires a double coincidence. And trading kidneys, if we just did it the way I described to you before, between two incompatible patient donor pairs, would involve a double coincidence of wants, which would limit the amount of trade you can do and the number of kidney transplants you can get. So a lot of what we've done in kidney transplantation, where we're not allowed to use money, is figure out ways to get around the double coincidence. We now sometimes have long chains of transplants where, where you can involve many patient donor pairs and, and you don't ever have to find two who can trade with each other as long as you find people who can pass it forward. Right. And thank you for that explanation on, on the double coincidence was eventually solved with the invention of money. And we were talking about how financial markets were, have evolved to include money with that invention. Uh, my next question is, what markets today do you feel are ripe for innovative redesign? That's a subtle question. You, you've asked it well. Uh, people often ask me, what markets do I think uh, could, use, could need to be redesigned? You aren't working well. But, but markets that need to be redesigned and because they aren't working well aren't always ripe for redesign because the, the historical and social and economic factors that have led to their current core design might still all be in place and, and prevent the redesign. So that's a good question of which ones are, are ripe for redesign. And let, let me just say, since you said you're on, you know, here and you're looking into college admissions, there are some problems with the current system of college admissions, but I don't see that as a market that's ripe for redesign. In other words, it's not working as well as it might, but it's not working so badly that there's a lot of eagerness to redesign it. Unless you can get lots of people to coordinate with each other to change the way things work, it's hard to, to change them. So, so I think you'll you're just fine in college admissions. You'll, you'll probably have you know, some, some moments of uncertainty and anxiety, and you'll, you'll, you may apply to more places than you really need to. You know, these, are, these are sort of small-scale problems with market design that I don't think are going to cause a groundswell of enthusiasm for, for changing the design, but might, might be annoying to you as you go through it. Markets that need redesign, well, you know, one of them is, and, and it might be becoming ripe, are how we handle human migration. Right? We're having a lot of trouble with refugee and asylum seeking and with plain economic and other kinds of migration, right? There are, there are messes, you know, at our southern border in the United States. There's, you know, very disorderly immigration to Europe across the Mediterranean. And in your lifetime, there's every reason to think that we're going to see sea levels rise and, and people start to get their feet wet where they live. And we're going to have to learn how to handle that better than we do. You know, this business of stopping people at the border and, you know, this may discourage them from coming, but it's not a good way to, to deal with who eventually immigrates to the United States and who doesn't or, or to Europe and who doesn't. So I think we have to pay attention and learn from our current failures because this isn't the problem that's going to go away. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Like as like climate change and other geopolitical factors happen, migration is definitely going to be something that's going to get a lot bigger. So I know we're almost out of time, but my final question, 
and it's something I've asked of all my guests is I read online that you have two sons. So whenever they were younger, say my age or a little bit older when they were in college, what lessons about economics and finance did you did you teach them? Oh, I, I don't know that I consciously taught them a lot of economics, but they they certainly were exposed to a lot of dinner table discussion in the family and, and with our friends and colleagues. So, you know, I, I think probably what what you can say to young people is, you know, most of us need to find employment in order to make our way in the world. And when you think about employment, you should think not just about, well, you should think simultaneously about what work would you, would you would feel is worthwhile to do and that you'll also enjoy doing because you can't work hard enough if you don't enjoy what you're doing. And you might be more happy with what you're doing if you think it's worthwhile. So, so I think that's the trick. It's not enough to, you know, we just talked about refugee resettlement. That's an important problem, but it might not be what you should earn your living at if that's not the kind of work you think that you could generate a lot of enthusiasm for. There might be other worthwhile things that, that you could do better at. I think you have to, to think about both those things, what, what's worth doing and, and what you enjoy doing. Any final advice for today's students in high school who are still interested as a topic, perhaps with the ambition of becoming like a professor like yourself, uh, what advice you have for them as it relates to economics? Well, as it relates to economics, if you're in high school, one thing you should do is plan to take a reasonable amount of math, because that's the language of many sciences. Math is a very useful tool that I think people often underinvest in when they're young, and that it's harder to play catch up later. But I think that there are lots of interesting things to do in the world, and you should keep your eyes open and look out for things that look interesting to you, worthwhile and fun. All right. With that, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. It was truly an honor to have you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. Please give us your thoughts and feedback on today's episode, what you liked, disliked, and what we could do better. Thanks to Dr. Alvin Roth for the insights he gave today. I hope you guys understand game theory and market design in a much more simplified way. Once again, we are really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email streetfins at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out streetfins.com for articles, videos, and other content, and to subscribe to our newsletter. Join the Streetfins community and follow us on social media, links in the description, and share us with your friends so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.